Okay, so that was a really great discussion. We discussed lots of counterfactuals in the past, and perhaps it's worth considering that again here. So what is, we have time to kind of formulate our takes. Uh, this is such a pivotal time period in American history. It's something that historians debate over quite a bit. Um, and we're here to set the record straight. Uh, to have the only opinion that matters. Yeah, the and definitive so, version of history. Yes. <laughs> you look no further. This is the end of the road. So, um, <laughs> but no, seriously, like, I mean, there, there's there's so much to cover and everything. So I guess, like, let's just start off uh, with especially what was the real impact of appointing Truman as FDR's VP? I mean, I don't like it was, I mean, we, we could say it was, uh, you know, <laughs> everything we mentioned in uh, the the last podcast from, uh, you know, starting the dismantling of, uh, you know, New Deal programs to, you know, you could argue like uh, partially like Taft-Hartley to, uh, you know, the creation of the, you know, NSC, CIA, et cetera, <laughs> you know, escalation of... Uh, the cold war um i mean if you take kind of like a purely instrumental view of it like you know truman's outlook versus wallace's outlook i think it it does get like a lot more complicated than that in you know uh <laughs> what like neither truman or wallace had like an organized you know like labor or like socialist party behind them and um you know, it, it, it's hard to predict what exactly Wallace would have done as president. Um, I mean, we, we can talk about that more, but um, I don't know. Like, like I, I kind of think uh, Truman being appointed VP kind of like uh, symbolized like years of just like uh, reaction to the New Deal and, and capital kind of uh, feeling its oats a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, given what we talked about in the main episode, right, uh, I think it's safe to say Truman's exactly the worst guy <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, to your point, Justin, I mean, I, th I think some of this debate, sometimes it pretends as if Truman, like, accidentally got into power or something like that, as if this was not a culmination of events, of greater forces at work and things like that. And, you know... FDR for the good things that happened during FDR's presidency, a lot of the stuff like replacing the heads of New Deal administrations with business leaders and stuff like that began before Truman was even a thought as VP. You know, FDR was doing that prior. And I, I think it speaks to the complicated nature of trying to understand history as just a clash of individual personalities. Yeah. Um, that what we're actually looking at and what we, you know, described when we talked about the depression a couple episodes ago is what we're actually looking at as a class war and the American capitalist class, the American ruling class, you know, it made its play and it controls both parties. So its play was we're going to, you know, we know Roosevelt's going to die and we're going to put, you know, uh, this Truman guy in, but they had already been exerting pressure over FDR himself. I mean, it's, I, it, you know, We'll talk about Wallace here in a second, but, you know, one of the other interesting counterfactuals would be like, 
what if FDR had access to like the baby goo that keeps, you know, every octogenarian politician alive today, you know, what if they're able to like crack an infant open and, and give FDR, you know, 20 more years of life. And yeah, you know, and I think it, it brings us back to the point that FDR is not a dedicated Maoist or something. He's a skilled politician and like all skilled politicians, he can tell which way the wind's blowing, <laughs> you know? Well, also, it's like throughout like all of the, you know, machinations at the convention, it's like really hard to tell like uh, what FDR's motivations are. Like, uh, you know, he's giving, uh, you know, Hannigan letters that's saying like, oh, maybe Truman or oh, Douglas. And then he's telling other people like, oh, maybe Burns could be the guy like. Uh, mm hmm. I mean, I again, I'm not uh, like I, I'm not the biggest FDR head, um, and I, you know, I, now I would like to read a, a bit a bit more about this. But um, I think it, it seems like, at least from reading, you know, I read the McCullough Truman biography and another book by uh, Farrell on the convention. Um, I think they speculated that you know FDR knew he was gonna die soon and so like his his top line you know or his administration's you know top line you know priority was to just uh you know complete the world war ii mobilization ensure an allied victory um you know uh he wasn't he wasn't quite as much uh, focused on like the continuation of the new deal policies Wait, so if if I if I get this right, uh, Roosevelt kind of was like a guru figure in that sense, where like he didn't really open his mouth much. Everyone was kind of trying to interpret what he was saying through like cryptic, uh, like yeah, he was really cryptic, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, wow. I mean, and this also kind of gets to a point that the man is dying. Uh, he's in extremely bad shape, and because of that, you can kind of read whatever you want to read onto it, right? Because yeah. When he does something that seems, you know, counter to your, you know, if you if your narrative is that Roosevelt really believes in like labor and the New Deal, when he does something counter to that, you could just write it off as like, oh, well, he was like very sick and, you know, didn't know what he was doing or something like that. Right. Or if you want to read that, you know, Roosevelt is just a politician responding to pressure, you could you know read it that way. Right. I mean, this is sort of the problem with the time period which is why I think you have to take the sort of larger view of politics beyond personalities. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It, it, but So like, it, it seems like there's this balance though, because politicians do respond to pressure, but it's just like their individual like personality kind of does like, I think Truman mm -hmm. and FDR kind of show that they're, they do have some agency in like how they do respond to pressure mm -hmm. as well, because I think that, you know, Labor was like it's not like labor suddenly just disintegrated when like Truman got into power, right? Like they were still yeah. like extremely, you know, strong. But you know, obviously the tides turned in a very different way as well. So like, how much how much of that do you think is, um, you know, an outside force, and how much do you think that that is like a consequence of like Truman, uh, or like just a you know a major ally of the business class getting into, uh, into power in general. Well, I think what you're seeing is that the business class is becoming coordinated throughout the 1930s and is 
preparing a counterattack against labor, right? They were caught off guard by the labor upsurge of the 1930s, and they begin essentially preparing their counterattack, uh, you know, lining up organizations, you know, with a single line, putting people in influential places of power, right? And then getting their, you know, mouths to Roosevelt's ear and stuff like that. And I think his capitulation to business on, you know, World War II and allowing them to run, you know, New Deal programs and things like that and allowing them to essentially treat World War II like their own personal windfall at the expense of everybody else. I think that agreement alone would have crippled the New Deal no matter who was in power. And, Mm. you know, and these are the devil's bargains, I guess you could say, that Roosevelt is making. But if you take the wider view, it's like, no, this is the offensive that capital is taking and that labor at the time in the United States didn't have an answer for and continued to not have an answer for up until the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Um, and in the other yeah. podcasts, we talk about, uh, you know, the NAM and uh, the Chamber of uh, Commerce and kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the culture war uh, yeah. they, they, they wage on, uh, you know, the left and, uh, you know, communism and socialism and workers. Yeah, yeah. Me and Justin talk about that at length, and we'll have a future episode of this podcast where we talk about it again, or me and me need to talk about it again. And when I say that business uh, got their ducks in a row to kill labor, they got their ducks in a row to kill labor. The the business offensive that comes after 45 is, I mean, really something that we should look back and just, you know, just appreciate the efficiency, brutal efficiency of the whole thing. I mean, they they really bring the hammer down. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very, like, swift and, and brutal and effective. And, you know, as you said, Brian, labor didn't really have an answer to it. I'm wondering, now that we have the benefit of hindsight and you know, like history continuing, uh, is there, was there any possible answer that they could have had? Or was it just like so overwhelming that it's like hard to feasibly even imagine like, you know, a counter to that? I mean, it's, it's one of those things that like all counterfactuals is a little difficult to say, especially in the United States. I mean, the answer in Europe is a little clear, but the sort of leadership of labor, if we want to say that the CPUSA is like the, you know, sort of radical leadership of the labor movement, which it was at the time, you know, uh, yeah, they fucked up over and over again. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. from Browderism in the 40s during the war, where they they told everybody that uh, communism is just 20th century Americanism, mm-hmm. and they stopped talking about, that we should talk less about Marx and Engels and more about Lincoln and Washington and stupid <laughs> slogans like that. I mean, <laughs> insane shit like that. Um, you know, but, after, go ahead. Like, like, like Woody, Woody Guthrie, uh, you know, and like the American folk revival and like, kind of, I don't know, like there was some power in fusing like, you know, socialist communist politics and like, I don't know, like, uh, americana and like appealing to people mm-hmm. through things like uh you know popular music like i don't know there's something to that like i get just yeah i get what you're saying but you know no i mean in the communist movement always you know you know you always use your sort of cultural 
you know, heritage or whatever in the area, right? You know, yeah. but the thing was, you could have, uh, instead of saying, listen to your president by saying, look, you know, we're in oh, the, yeah. the thing of Lincoln and Washington, right? You could have upheld John Brown or something like that, right? Like, I mean, there's other, you know, sort of position or important union leaders of the past who had died, you know, things like that. But uh, they chose sort of like a, a an easy, like crass nationalism. Now, that being said, you know, from our current position, uh, we face nowhere near the pressures and things like that that the American Communist Party faced in like 1942. Um, so, you know, easy for us to say, I guess. But I think in hindsight, uh, was a mistake. And coming out of the war, uh, you know, the CPUSA really just couldn't get its shit together. There was a lot of internal fighting to get rid of Earl Browder and then, you know, just internal struggle. The approach they had to Capitol's assault, which was, all right, uh, everybody just go underground and pretend like the CPUSA doesn't exist, uh, I think turned out to be the exact wrong thing to do uh, with HUAC and stuff like that. Again, I mean, this is all just with the benefit of hindsight. You could totally see in the moment yeah, of course. how it made sense. Um, yeah. By the late 60s, when groups like uh, Progressive Labor and like the Revolutionary Union, stuff like that, when they're getting called in front of HUAC and saying, yeah, I am a communist and we should have revolution in the United States, it actually like causes HUAC to essentially disband and stop doing public <laughs> events and things like that. Because the problem is, is like the part of the reason for HUAC's existence is to make these people look small, to make them look petty and all this kind of stuff. And it's not good when they like stand up and firmly say communism is good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it, it, it has, uh, you know, not the effect they want. But again, I mean, it's all the benefit of hindsight. The people in the late sixties did that because they saw what the CPUSA did, didn't work and they were taking a new tact. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, the answer was, is that, the CPUSA needed more revolutionary politics, but they didn't. Ha they didn't exist at the time. It's tough. Yeah, they used the the popular front strategy basically with the the Democratic yeah. Party. Um, I mean, yeah they, and, yeah, they thought that relationship could continue, and it, it just couldn't. You know, right? Yeah, it has it has a life cycle. Yeah, and it it have to end even if it was like maybe effective before. It couldn't mm -hmm. just continue forever, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's hard because people's interpretation of events tends to lag where they actually are historically. And so it would be hard in like 1940 or whatever to tell people who maybe feel like they're winning, right? Like they've gotten some New Deal wins and things like yeah. that to tell them like, hey, it's time to probably divorce ourselves from this party and, you know, from the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's like, why? We're, we're winning, right? Like, yeah. we're <laughs> we're seeing gains. Why do we stop now? You know, it's the strategy's working. Yeah, yeah. okay. And, and you don't, you know, it, it's easy, especially for American leftists online, it's really easy to come off sounding like a douchebag being like, oh, these fucking idiots should have just done this or that. And it's important to remember they existed in a historical context with its own limitations <laughs> and things like that. But, yeah. uh, but you know, you still also have to, you know, you need to look at things critically. And, you know, I think the CPUSA dropped the ball in a lot of places. Even if it's understandable it. why they did, they did. Got it, yeah. got it. Yeah, well, I think that's like a good transition into, now we, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, Truman as FDR's VP, um, is there any path where 
that does not happen. Like, is there a path where Wallace could have gotten that VP slot? Yeah, Burns could have been VP. (laughs) No, yeah, Burns really, really could have. Yeah, this is how I win. Yeah, the lynching guy could have been been VP. Truman, Truman was the the compromise choice, and I mean, maybe they just put forward Burns as like, uh, see, we're we're giving you, uh, we're giving labor (laughs) and uh, black people like one candidate that's you know at least a little better than Burns. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like uh, the, the, the thing we were talking about before, like I think FDR could have like, I mean, if FDR was, was all in for, for Wallace, like he was at the 1940 convention um, where he full throatedly just endorses Wallace says Wallace is my guy. Like he could have mm-hmm. gotten Wallace on the ticket. Now, yeah. again, like we were talking about, like there's a lot of people in FDR's ear. He's almost dead. Uh, they're trying to finish uh, this this war. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, FDR, again, is like appointing all these uh, advisors who are like against, you know, New Deal programs. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he didn't. Uh, but I think uh, in... in a world where we have, uh, you know, maybe uh, a healthy FDR with a bit more of a, you know, positive and uh, socialist outlook, he certainly could have, like, he was so popular, he certainly could have given Wallace a full-threaded endorsement. Maybe Wallace uh, gets the VP slot. Yeah, and um, I, I think that's the only world where that happens, right? FDR is going to have to go to bat for him. And again, yeah, it brings us back to was FDR, was FDR too sick for the fight or did he just not care, <laughs> you know? And you could debate that forever because it's unknowable, right? That's like, yeah. you know, can't stare into his soul kind of stuff. Um, I think, though, it's safe to say that minus... FDR's direct and you know sort of strident input or arguing for Wallace, there's no situation in which Wallace remains VP. Um, now, the thing about Truman that's interesting is I do think it is a debate. I think the three names they had, which was Burns, yeah. William of Douglas, James Burns, William of Douglas, and Harry Truman, I think there was some internal debate about where to go with that. And kind of like all of Truman's career, he just... Me- through his own mediocrity because like he has no outstanding features which other people tend to have uh he kind of like is always like the less you know he's the easy compromise choice because there's nothing interesting about him um but i mean there's a world where maybe somebody's a real douglas head and goes to bat you know and like pushes <laughs> the douglas issue or you know people really feel that like burns deserves it you know because i mean the you know james burns whole thing is that well he's been in the you know with the Democratic Party for so long and been an important player for so long, you know, like he he deserves it. And yeah, you know, I mean, I guess somebody could have really pushed that. I mean, uh, that would have been an, another interesting transition from FDR dying to an old South fucking, you know, freak uh, senator taking over, you know. Uh, yeah. And maybe he loses to Dewey. Very Andrew Johnson, by the way, too. Like that's a very Lincoln to Johnson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, real history repeating itself. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, the one thing is, is that Burns and maybe Douglas to some degree. I mean, Douglas is also just kind of like a, you know, a wet sack or something. But uh, 
But Burns definitely has enough personality, which he then exerts on Truman hilariously as uh, Secretary of War. But like, he has at least enough personality that if he were in office, you know, maybe he exerts his own will. I mean, when I say that Truman was the worst possible choice, is that the man just does what he's told. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. The, when business really wants to whisper into the president's ear, the worst possible guy is a guy like Harry Truman. It's just like, okay. okay. <laughs> so, Say no more, fam. Yeah, hit the button, Harry. Okay. Boop. <laughs> one, one point to make would be that, um, you know, like labor <laughs> probably could have gone to bat for, you know, not Truman, not Burns quite a bit harder. I know, um, mm-hmm. You know, Sydney Sydney Hillman from the CIO, like later, I don't have the exact quote, but like uh, he had some quote like, you know, after, you know, in the middle of Truman's presidency where he's like, I rue the day where uh, we, we, we said uh, Truman would be tolerable. Like uh, he implied it was just like a huge mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the CIO at the time, the CIO has several million members i mean it's it's huge i mean they like yeah that's okay that's actually a good sense of scale because i feel like you know we can kind of get lost in just like oh is this like a smaller you know organization that just has a lot of influence or you know so several million members in the cio like which is the radical arm of the labor uh of like the organized labor you know movement outside of the communist party um which has you know as we said on the other episodes has a mix of um, communist party members in the cio break off of the afl so you know that's like not a that's not a small break off that's a very large one well yeah and i mean the thing is is that the cio could exert at that time in 1944 the same pressure that business exerted on the white house too which is just saying like look we'll do a mass work stoppage like we've been playing along with this no strike pledge you know i mean there's still some strikes but they're mostly wildcats right but like the CIO could just say like, look, we're just we're gonna do a work stoppage in the middle of the war. Now, would that have just caused the popul you know the rest of the population to like revolt against labor? Maybe I don't know. You know, I mean, that'd be a that'd be a ballsy fucking call on the CIO's part, on John L. Lewis's part to basically be like, yeah. you know, we're gonna go to bat for Wallace. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing though is that like they could have at least threatened it. I mean, they didn't bother. Yeah, like, sure, sure. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, on on the topic of Wallace, right? So let's say that Roosevelt actually does give his full gutted endorsement. Looks great, skin shining. Yeah. Um, You know, (laughs) just uh, everyone in the party full of adrenaline. Exactly right. Exactly. (laughs) Skin moisturized, and um, and Wallace does actually become Roosevelt's VP. And so we want to go, you know, forward to the post-war world again, and like. What what really would it look like if Wallace was still Roosevelt's VP? Because the post-war world, it, se- it really seemed like right after the war, it was this hinge point where things could have been different, mm-hmm. right? And so how much of that could Wallace have influenced and what could have actually came out of uh, the post-war world in general? Maybe we could talk about, you know, the utopian perspective first like if if wallace does you know if if wallace kind of like executes on uh you know 
some of the the rhetoric rhetoric uh he had in uh you know the century of the common man it's like uh you know <laughs> we we don't escalate the cold war like maybe <laughs> Maybe we we don't have the Cold War. Maybe we delay that for another, you know, like ten years through Wallace's presidency. Um, and that 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 seems like a a, a huge positive. Um, maybe we uh, continue, you know, developing social programs. Maybe we get something like uh, national health insurance. Um, maybe we don't create, uh, you know, the the CIA, all these defense programs and have such an enlarged military, or we at least delay that again, another, another 10 years, but that's in 10 years. I mean, that's not, that's not nothing, right? Like that's significant in the Mm -hmm. time period. I mean, you would imagine after like 45, like going up to like, you know, 55 or 65, right? Like that's, that would just be a different context for the CIA to, to form, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there is a tendency from certain boomers, Oliver Stone, um, to <laughs> have this belief that, like, oh, there was this one moment where, you know, if this guy and this guy switch places, you know, everything in America changes. And and I think kind of to, you know, that that's sort of the utopian view, although I, I think, Justin, you were you're maybe uh, showing your hand a little bit by saying that utopia only lasts so long as Wallace is in office, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I don't, I, I don't think that's Oliver Stone's view. His view is like uh, that, that Simpsons imagine like, a world like, without if, lawyers. If this you know, happened, like, then, yeah. you know, the yeah. rest of history would just be permanently like changed on a different trajectory because yeah. we didn't do this at this time. We, and it sounds, it sounds like we're like kind of unanimously rejecting that view that yeah. is kind of popular with people like Oliver Stone. Yeah, he thought there was some sort of way we could just short circuit like the class struggle and the struggle against American imperialism and things like that. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that's realistic. And I also think, you know, as far as Wallace goes, I mean, even how long he could delay it while in office. And it, I mean, we could get to a discussion of Wallace the man and what his actual beliefs were. But yeah. even, you know, let's say best possible scenario, Henry Wallace's uh, uh you know, Lenin part two or whatever, he might be able to hold it off for a little bit, but the fundamental fact is business had coalesced around a full force unified counteroffensive and labor wasn't prepared to counter back, right. To attack back. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be true, whether Wallace was in office or not, that, that ball had already, that ball was already in play. Right. And, you know, what Wallace could do from the presidency. I mean, you have to assume he has a lot of the same advisors who are just going to undermine him every step of the way. He has a Senate and a, you know, especially, but a Senate and a house that's going to undermine him the whole way. Forget the judiciary. Right. You know, like, I mean, he would be in a lot of ways, a lone man, you know, trying to push this stone up the hill. And, you know, I, I, I just, no part of me sees how that works. You know, especially yeah. long term. You know, maybe you can pull it off for a year, two years, maybe three years even. But like, could he win re-election? I don't know. That's a that's a probably a no. You know, uh, could he maintain it if he did win re-election? I don't know. That seems like a no as well. But 
And like, well, is yeah, yeah. is Wallace like ready for you know uh, <laughs> an actual like class struggle you know presidency? Which you know <laughs> that it, that would be extremely hard to do. Like a lot of politicians, you know, like talk like uh, populists. You know, we're we're gonna like mobilize the American working class. And I mean, we've seen like Bernie use that sort of rhetoric. Yeah. And then not not really do it because, uh, you know, it brings you into conflict with uh, your colleagues. It brings you into conflict uh, with capital. It'll undermine your presidency. If you do it very well, uh, you might get, uh, I mean, people might try to assassinate you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, like, e- even, like, people would argue even, you know, Allende in, in, in Chile doesn't, doesn't totally do it as far as like you know mobilizing uh uh the working mm-hmm. class when he gets to the presidency and i would say like his his views as like a marxist or a socialist and like you know his, his backing among amongst like you know organized politics is is much greater than uh than yeah. wallace's yeah, I mean, to your point, Justin, about, you know, guys like Allende or maybe like a Patrice Lumumba or something like that, uh, people with more radical politics than Henry Wallace and a greater connection of working class have tried and failed, right? And, you know, this gets to Wallace the person, which, you know, I, I don't want to just shit on the guy. He's a good guy. He seems like yeah. nice enough, well-meaning enough and all that kind of stuff, but we should be real. I mean, he's, he's a good guy. He's not a like dedicated party member with like, uh, you know, a vision, you know, where to and go. And his views and waver there. on like, you know, de-escalation with the Soviet union, like eight years later, there's an interview where he's like totally shitting on them and wants to, you know, escalate. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's malleable in that sense. And I mean, this comes back to the point of, why individual politicians tend not to be particularly reliable and why like things like parties and party structures matter. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think the other part about Wallace is like, does he really, because he doesn't have these very strong sort of political views and like this idea of a political mission, is he willing to really go to bat for these things? And I mean, he could be very much like a Jeremy Corbyn type figure who again is a very nice, sweet man. But it's just not cut out for the war that he's about to walk into, you yeah, know, like right. it's not going to defend himself in the way that he's going to have to and all the kind of stuff, you know. I mean, on, on a deeper level, too, this seems to get to a point where this almost becomes an analysis of abolition versus reform in general. Uh, if you would let me, I think that, um, you know individual politicians within this U.S. system, within ending the myth, what we've talked about was how the system was basically propped up and based on settler colonialism, uh, you know, chattel slavery, and, you know, bourgeois revolution against the British crown. Uh, I'm just kind of wondering, even like zoomed out more, how is it, is it even, when we think about, existing within this given system without completely let's say smashing the constitution or the senate or just like these structures that were put up by an oppressive force that is just inherently like contradictory to the goals of socialism like existing in the u.s empire you're still basically and 
you have to kind of, you know, be an agent of the U.S. empire and aka an imperialist mm-hmm. too, right? Like, it, do you do you see any, um, like, to what degree is that thesis more true in your view, or is there like, is there more nuance within uh, governing within the empire without necessarily fundamentally changing its structures, like getting elected into U.S. government and being able to do anything good with the with the system that we were given because to me to me to be honest sometimes I think of like like when I put it in context that seems like more absurd like for instance if Fidel Castro just like walked into Batista's government but had all the same structures you know like would that would, would that look the same as how you know Cuba is now to me it just seems like absurd to for like one one man to walk in and then have basically like a swarm of hostile people with all the same power structures able to basically torpedo you, you know, like it's, it's, it's hard for me to compute when I take it outside of the, you know, U S context, which we're familiar with. So I guess, is it, is it different in the U S or how, what do you see kind of that viewpoint of if it's even like, if the efficacy of existing in a current system without it being fundamentally changed uh, is like even possible or not. The, the state is, is not an instrument and especially the U S state. And we need a new, a new constitution. Uh, I think uh, I've been, I've been pilled on that from reading Cosmonaut. I think we really do need a new uh, constitution. (laughs) Uh, we need a we we need a working class movement to change. And that's our for, by the way, that's Cosmopolitan magazine. Uh, they've been putting <laughs> out some pretty sick articles recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I don't know, like uh, I I would I would balance that with with that. Like I know that there's like um, you know fairly radical histories that um, you know correctly point out like atrocities uh, the U.S. government has. Take, has has committed since like its inception but i also don't think like the u.s working class is uh irredeemable like uh you know it can be uh you know a force uh for socialism we can you know like socialism c- can be winnable in uh the united states uh, we just face a lot of uh unique challenges and need to readjust our our strategy and um, to your point, like, I think, like, treating the state as, uh, you know, <laughs> the state is like a bourgeois state that is operating, like, fundamentally against our interests that cannot be reformed, like, that, that perspective, I think, is very important. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes we get lost and uh, maybe kind of in the clouds uh intellectual discussions about like oh you know the state and things like that but yeah there's built-in structural power for the capitalist class in the state that you have to actually consider and like to bring this back to the ground one thing wallace would have to do right if he was serious and wanted to you know do whatever is like i don't know get rid of the fucking war department you know it's an entire department of the state that uh fucking hates you and is armed to the teeth that's a problem right you'd have to get rid of the senate i mean we we talked about on the show before the senate is literally designed to prevent the passage of you know sort of radical things i mean 
when people talk about getting rid of the constitution, I mean, this is what they mean is there's structures built within the constitutional order that are designed specifically to prevent these kind of, you know, radical action from happening. And the, uh, as we talked about on the show, even the framers of the constitution were actually very explicit about that. Like that this is why we're doing this is to prevent anything that would affect property from being passed. And, you know, uh, no force of personality is going to overcome that. You have to actually get rid of those institutions. And I don't know if you spend, you know, if you spend 10 years, 20 years, whatever, trying to get some guy elected as president, you know, of the Democratic Party, right? You know, not even your own fucking party, because <laughs> you, you can't do that in the United States because of the way our party structure is set up. But you know, to get this guy elected, I think it's a really tough sell once in the presidency for them to be like, all right, so what we got to do is we actually got to, the this, this system that I'm in charge of, that I'm the executive, we actually have to get rid of every part of it. Like, we, we can't have it, we got to get rid of the federal judiciary, it's bullshit, we got to get rid of the Senate, uh, no more Defense Department. You know, of course, this gets worse with every year, because now it's not just get rid of the CIA, uh, Joshua for Congress has to now expand to the, the <laughs> Department of Homeland Security, yeah, you know, DHS. Honest, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> the work cut out for him, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff, I mean, what, I mean, again, talk about built-in institutions, the motherfucking FBI, right, like, yeah. the second Wallace is in office, the FBI would have already been, you know, undermining his presidency, if not taking more drastic measures, right? Right, you know? because, I mean, because, because these, uh, you know, departments and bureaus are, you know, political, in, yeah. in a sense, they're not, the they're not neutral, and they behave, yeah, and they behave politically, too. Yeah. And the, will actually leverage their force, which means, well, so to get to your point, Brian, like their the actual resources that they have, like an, if, if you have a hostile, I mean, that's how like military coups happen. It's like if yeah. you lose the military like that, then they'll actually use their force that they have to basically oust you. Right. And like that's kind of the, it sounds like that's kind of the implication that you're saying is that you know, the FBI, the, you know, the military, the Defense Department, et cetera, like is an actual, <clears throat> excuse me, is an actual hostile threat if you're actually trying to dismantle those systems and they won't just like be like okay well that's the rules right it's yeah, like exactly you'll have to, exactly you'll, <laughs> you'll have to really kind of wage a wage a war and it's like that's not something that you know is necessarily straightforward yeah i mean they'll do things they'll undermine you they'll you know engage in activities to embarrass you and yeah i mean you know who knows where they'll go past that? We know what the U.S. encourages other countries' militaries to do when they don't like the leadership, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's one of those things, and I and I think if you look at successful revolutions, and by successful I mean where the you know working class organization actually holds power afterwards for some portion of time, um, you know, one of the things they do is they fundamentally break up all those structures, right, and. Mm-hmm. Less successful ones are ones that have been, you know, either fallen apart instantly or have been, you know, let's just say under uh, in pretty dire straits. I mean, this will get all the Internet people jumping down my throat. But I think this is what was wrong with Venezuela, which is, again, not to shit on the Chavez or the Chavistas or whatever, but allowing, you know, the tendrils of private enterprise to continue to exist, you know allowing private radio stations and media outlets to continue to exist and things like that has been nothing but a like thorn in the side of the project in Venezuela. I mean, these are the people who 
are constantly stabbing the Chavistas in the back who are emptying, emptying the grocery store shelves to create false scarcity and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, if you let those people continue to exist, they will fight you tooth and nail to the end, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at some point you have to break up that institutional power, you know, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, it's got to be broken. Yeah, which is why revolutions are so painful is because if you're revolting against a system that basically controls all of the resources, right, like especially yeah. in the U.S., right, I mean, just a brief point, it's like, you know, U.S., like our, our energy is privatized, our all of our food is like owned by, you know, like conglomerates, right, like uh, where we get all of those things are weapons that the capital class can and will use right yeah. against something that is directly in their threats. So, you know, you might like, we might have like weeks without like, you know, uh, power. We, we can't, you know, depend on like social media or Slack for our communications, you know, like that <laughs> we our our food could be completely like, as you said, like what happened in Venezuela, uh, the shelves could just be unstocked because it's not controlled actually by, uh, the public that would have to be basically seized uh, immediately right and like to let mm-hmm. that ke- exist is like basically having a class of people with pipe bombs like constantly trying to you know undermine you which makes makes the whole makes it harder over the long term to actually to do anything because because of letting that antagonistic class basically um still exist with like you know yeah with essential goods that the people need yeah, I mean, these people will fight to the death to keep their sort of class position intact. And I mean, to your point, Munya, I mean, uh, say we elect, uh, you know, Senator Vladimir Lenin to the presidency or whatever. Yeah, I mean, what's to stop the power companies from just going on capital strike and turning off everybody's power? And the only response that anybody can really give to that is, uh, they wouldn't. And it's like, yeah. well, why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you think so highly of the people that run our energy sector, but you clearly have never met any of them. <laughs> yeah. just, just just to be clear, though, I think they would keep Twitter running during a revolutionary period because, uh, you know, that could suck up a nice amount of energy to distract us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Social media will be in full force. <laughs> Now, I mean, to, but to get to maybe another point that that maybe we'll talk about in a Q and A episode a little more in depth. But somebody brought up in the Discord the business plot, which was in 1934, 35. It's where just some like yokel kind of jokes, uh, you know, like uh, ruling class fail sons sort of negotiated amongst themselves to maybe potentially launch a coup against uh, FDR, right? You know, to stop the New Deal, and. <laughs> It was fundamentally unserious and wasn't going anywhere. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a serious one. And I, I think that, you know, oh, best possible scenario where Wallace, you know, turns into Lenin, uh, the CIO, it turns into the Bolsheviks and they start engaging in revolutionary action <laughs> for <laughs> Wallace's four years in office uh, across the United States. I mean, I, you know, I, I, why wouldn't they just try and launch a coup against them? I mean, you know? yeah. Again, why, this is, why not? This is the U.S.'s answer for everything abroad. And as we've learned in this series, all of imperialism's projects abroad always come home, you know? And again, I mean, the only answer that 
that people can give you on when you ask these kind of questions so it's like uh they wouldn't it's like no they wouldn't do that that, against their own people yeah if you feel yeah their own people the ones that they (laughs) keep in cages by the millions (laughs) you know know. and as we'll talk about later uh they're eventually going to pass a thing called the mccarran security act again under truman uh where the fbi was already doing this but officially begins keeping lists of people to put in internment camps if there's domestic you know sufficient domestic uh strife or whatever um you know and so not only would they do it but they were already making plans you know like this has been a plan for a while uh hundreds of thousands of names by all accounts were kept on lists uh, to be rounded up and interned uh should labor struggle get too out of hand Right, right. Oh. Cool. Well, <laughs> yeah. <that's cool. laughs> well, maybe we should ask one more question too, uh, just because we watched the uh, Oliver Stone interview about it. But again, I don't want to shit Oliver Stone. He seems like a cool guy. I think he's just wrong about things. But um, Oliver Stone puts forward the view, and I'm just curious what y'all thought on this: that we wouldn't have dropped the atomic bombs. I mean, this gets specifically to the foreign policy question here. Had FDR uh, drank the adrenochrome and stayed alive, the bomb wouldn't have been dropped. And I'm I'm just kind of curious what y'all's thoughts were on that. I mean, yeah, that that's a tough one just because there's so much momentum behind the atomic bomb and it's so much of a like sunk cost at this point that mm-hmm. a lot of these advisors just like, expect that we're gonna drop it like we made this thing to use it i know in that uh oliver stone interview uh he mentions that well fdr was always ambiguous uh, about whether we were gonna use it um i mean fdr was ambiguous about you know several things but um I I know you you made that point about uh what somebody interjected and said like but then why did yeah. <laughs> Truman have all the same uh, military advisors as FDR you know yeah Bruce Cummings is like leading the discussion who's a very good historian who's going to come up here in probably about ten minutes but uh yeah yeah he he interjects and he's like uh, Truman had all the same advisors FDR did like. <laughs> Oh, I mean, seems problematic, but, you know. That that, that does. I I think the very existence of the atomic bomb in and of itself, right, that, like you said, Justin, is a very big liability for the bomb actually dropping. I think, to be honest, I don't even think it's like a question of whether the bomb gets dropped or not. I think it definitely does get dropped. I think it's where it gets dropped, right? Um, Yeah. I don't, I don't, I sincerely, and this is kind of where I think, you know, consequence of being an executive actually does, you know, matter within the imperial state is that I, if, it, with, with FDR actually drinking the hydrogenochrome and being fully mentally there, right? I, I don't, I just, it's hard for me to conceive of him insisting that we drop it on a, a, a urban populace of people, you know, like I, I do, I can see us drop it on, you know, an island uh i could see us actually dropping it as a show of force um you know i could see it even dropped on maybe a uh you know smaller indigenous population that is not really known right or is not really as like seen as hiroshima um i i I can i can see that but it's hard for me to conceive of it going down the way it did with Mm -hmm. with fdr because that was just such a unique 
um, insistence to, you know, drop an atomic bomb on, you know, for on hundreds of thousands of people at once. Like, I mean, it was the cruelest possible choice of an incredibly cruel act. And I mean, to your point, Munia, I, you know, after we kind of discussed this last time, this uh, Oliver Stone interview, I was like, oh, I wonder what like Garl Perovitz has to say about this. And so Garl Perovitz wrote the book, The Decision to Use the Bomb, which is considered to be like the sort of history of, of the dropping the bomb. And I was like, you know, I wonder if he has some comments on Roosevelt. And hilarious, if you go into the index, he has a whole thing about, like, uh, would Roosevelt have dropped the bomb? So you get, like, three oh, wow. pages of him. <laughs> oh, wow. And he's, like, very ambiguous about it, actually. But, you know, if you read the book, and then he mentions it again in that section, one of the things he talks about is that Alverson's wrong. Roosevelt wasn't ambiguous about dropping the bomb. He was going to drop it. The question yep. is exactly the one you bring up, Munio, which is where they were going to drop it. And that's where he waffled around, you know. He went back and forth. Should we drop it on a population center or should we do a uh, a warning like test drop somewhere with with Japanese observers, which, again, goes to the point of that was a serious suggestion that people were bringing up, uh, you know, so Truman chose the obviously the most despicable choice. And again, because he waffled back and forth, I mean, you could make an argument either way that he would have done this or that. But to Justin's point, and I think this is where kind of this is why uh, Garl Peravitz, despite I think kind of liking Roosevelt, could never bring himself to say, give a definitive no on this, is the momentum of the project couldn't be denied at this point. And it's one of those things that just, we don't, uh, we don't talk about it a lot with dropping the bomb or whatever, but like, again, careers and stuff were on the line, but also, I mean, it wouldn't have just looked bad for like Leslie Groves if the bomb, if it, you know, the cost of the Manhattan Project came out and the sacrifices that were made for it came out, wouldn't just be bad for Leslie Groves. That'd be bad for Roosevelt himself. He fucking okayed all that, you know. I, I think that the bomb had it, it just had to be dropped, you know, like from the perspective of the ghouls in charge of this country, that was the only option. And the only question was where to drop it at that point. Yeah. Yeah, which was still, I mean, to be clear, it's not like if you don't drop it on a uh, urban population that there wouldn't be any impact. You know, I think there was still, especially if you're doing it near Japan or like with Japanese observers, you know, the I mean, dropping a bomb, like atomic bomb anywhere would ha have so severe ecological impacts uh, would probably still um, like uh, kill and radiate people uh, just maybe less visible to the public eye and in, in a less spectacular fashion mm -hmm. uh, but the the scale of that would be you know less so i mean dropping the bomb in general i just want to be clear it will be like would be extremely consequential to our environment to the people of japan or wherever the radius is like you know uh for i mean I mean, I don't know for how long, and again, definitely, it just it just would be impactful. But certainly, dropping it right on top of an urban population center um, is just like a, a uniquely cruel, even for the U.S. Empire standards, uh, decision to make. And like, get, go yeah. to go to Wikipedia and like look at the before and after pictures of like just like the aerial like radar, and I mean, before you can see like, actual textures of buildings and like after the bomb is dropped is literally just like flattened like when people say like bombs like will like flatten it it's like it's just like in an instant all of that texture all of that um 
what the radar was picking up completely just disappears. I mean, it is so chilling to look at. So, I mean, yeah, it can't be overstated just like how consequential dropping a bomb in like Hiroshima. Um, And it wasn't Nagasaki as well uh, or like. Uh, yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I mean, to your point, I mean, there's a documentary uh, that was made in 2007 called White Light, Black Rain uh, that I think is uniquely powerful in that they actually interview survivors of the attack, right? And I mean, there's scenes where they'll like pull their shirts up and show the like physical scars from the bomb. And it is one of the most horrifying documentaries you can watch. And uh it's worth watching. I mean, I think if as, you know, Americans, you know, are you know, you're you are the constituents of a country that is the only country in the world to have ever used nuclear weapons in war, I think it, you know, you're sort of uh it behooves you to go see what your country did. Yeah. You know, you should look at it, you know. That's where your tax dollars went. You know. Exactly. That's, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's what the Democratic Party did. <laughs> Hey, how about that? You know, yeah. Um, do do we think that you know be, because the like we we dropped the bomb mainly as like a show of force to the Soviet Union, and Wallace, you know, if if he was you know VP and you know later president, one of his you know planks was uh, you know like uh, not do not starting. Yeah, don't do the Cold War. Like, do do we do we think uh, President Wallace would have had any any influence? Whether you know, we either whether we dropped the bomb. Yeah, I mean, I think the question of just the institutional momentum is just still there. Yeah, I mean, there's just For sure. there's just too much pressure on all sides to do it, and you know, I mean, yeah, when it's theoretical, he says let's not do the Cold War, but when somebody's telling him like. Hey, just so you know, uh, we diverted war material from the front that probably led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people so that we could build this stupid bomb. And when the public finds out, uh, you're attached to it. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. VP <laughs> during all the important decisions yeah. and president during the most important decision. You know, I, I, I just don't see how he wouldn't just be pressured into dropping it like everybody else. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those horrifying things of, there's a bureaucratic logic to dropping it that is almost irresistible uh, on the part of, you know, politicians in the United States. Speaking of consequence and like what our empire, the one that we live in has done uh, looking, you know, to the future, what does the Korean war mean for the U S and its empire? Uh, it's pretty consequential in a lot of ways and, you know, potentially had some significant impact uh, just on the course of just U.S. history in general. Uh, so I'd just like to hear your guys' thoughts on that. All right, well, I think the first big item of consequence is it's going to lock in place a feature of the Cold War that we get to live with today, uh, which, you know, maybe one of us can do a Dwight Eisenhower impersonation or something. But uh it essentially is what creates the military industrial complex, right? Uh, yeah. You know, if you were to call it that, right? But it essentially Which locks- is fascinating that throughout all of this time period in the history that we've covered on Ending the Myth so far, we didn't actually have the military industrial complex yet. Yeah. Like this was all just getting pulled <laughs> off without without that, which is, the, which is kind of, of surprising to me. 
think of all the death and destruction the U.S. was able to bring without also spending half of its, uh, you know, GDP on, on the military. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the um, the Korean War. So after World War II, there's actually a demobilization of the military, which happens after every war, right? Which makes sense because the war is over. You don't just keep the military around. There's a significant demobilization and the back to back, you know, in the biggest air quotes possible loss of China, then followed by the Korean War, really creates a lot of pressure for this idea of like, oh, it at least creates a narrative that the U.S. demobilized in the face of this, you know, ongoing threat and that we're going to have to stay militarily mobilized to prevent this in the future. Now, Brian, j- Brian, just to, just to be clear, when you say loss of China, that's in the context of like the U.S. empire's perspective of yeah. ha- controlling China because the Communist Party took control in like '49, right? Yeah, yeah. So after the '49, you know, after the Chinese Communists win in '49, the narrative is the United States lost China, right? And right. Right. This is a very big deal. This, this is the big slander on Truman and, and such is that he lost China. But yeah, this, uh, you know, luckily we found it in Taiwan for 30 years. But anyways, <laughs> uh, but, you know, but that na- that creates a narrative structure of which they can hang this idea of like, we have to keep the military at full like war production. Now, this is extremely convenient because if you remember back to the discussions about World War One and World War Two. Uh, that war footing was a huge windfall for American capital and the Cold War war footing, right? The keeping the military always at the highest possible expenditure is essentially just a giant giveaway to business. It's, it's a bonanza. It's what makes, you know, uh, lots of people extremely rich. Um, and now we're fucking stuck with it. Uh, mysterious how after the Cold War ended, no peace dividend, as was talked about in the 90s, for those of us who remember, uh, the peace dividend never came back around. Uh, the contractors kept getting their money. Weird how that works. Almost mm. like it wasn't about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, war readiness or whatever to begin with. I think, like, from a higher level, I think it's kind of interesting how we go from, you know, fighting this good war that's like immensely popular quote unquote the good war you know world war mm-hmm. two to um i think there were there might be some polls that exist but um uh which i can't find right now i was trying to find one offhand but i believe that the the popularity of this korean war amongst the public is like fairly ambiguous but people mm-hmm are kind of in a state where they kind of like trust and like glorify like all these generals and you know you transition to uh vietnam um where eventually you know like you know we we have uh uh we we have better media like we can watch this this war was actually on tv uh there is a you know common you know like people were being like drafted into this war and you have like a a mass action against uh you know vietnam war like sustained like mass mass Mm -hmm. protests you can argue whether like how effective they were at like uh you know ending uh the war in a in a timely fashion but people did think they had you know, the ability to change society and, and stop the war. And that's why they did it. 
And, um, you know, I, I eventually we get rid of the draft and uh, we have all these unaccountable, you know, military uh, security institutions. And now, like, we've kind of, I don't know, like, uh, we've kind of, like, lost uh, the belief that we can, like, you know, change society and, like, stop wars through these kinds of mass actions. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm just saying, like, the, the Korean War kind of, like, starts us on this path where, like, you know, the U.S. public starts to, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, ha- have doubts about all the stuff we're doing overseas. And I feel like now, like, the public, I think, like, has, like, massive doubts about, you know, some of, some of these, uh, you know, wars and conflicts we get into. But then now we lack the perspective that we could actually, like, change things, which is uh, not, a, not a good place to be in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that Korea, I mean, Korea condenses the entire experience in Vietnam to like three years. And, you know, that is, that is a horrifying for... sentence to say in general, to <laughs> yeah. think about the Vietnam War condensed into three years. Just, whoa. Yeah. And, you know, I think for the public, a lot of cynicism is being, you know, the cynicism that existed prior to World War II, that old fashioned World War One cynicism comes back with the Korean War. And I mean, one important outcome of that is the very first group of people protesting against the Vietnam War is going to be Korean War veterans. You know, they form the first Veterans for Peace organizations. They're at the very first protests in, I believe, 64 against the Vietnam War. Uh, You know, they form a lot of cases, the like core of the anti-war movement. And that comes from the... uh, you could say cynicism or like the the look at reality that they got by going to Korea. By the way, it also, you know, the cynicism that was created by the Korean War and the U.S. intervention there also led to the creation of one of the most insidious phrases of the Cold War, which was brainwashing, which was the idea that if American soldiers come home from the Korean War and tell you the U.S. is doing bad things over there and we shouldn't be there, oh, They've been brainwashed by the communists. They don't actually mean that. So they shot them with the secret brain laser, you know, that, that has uh, convinced them that uh, killing millions of people is bad. Um, but yeah, it, I mean that that again. I mean they wouldn't be coming up with these like fake terms and pushing them if you know there wasn't serious discontent brought about by the war. Right. Well, to me, and let me just like get this straight because I've been trying to square this in my mind for a little bit. So, like after World War II, the U.S. essentially like brokers a deal to split up North, like North and South Korea. Like that is like it used to just be Korea. Now it is North and South Korea after World War II, and then just three years later, uh, the U.S. turns around and basically makes those two fight against each other right like but 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 it's like the u.s basically as using south korea as like a satellite to um to wage war almost against itself in a way because i mean like that's just like three years after the u.s just draws a line in borders and if you have any experience or you know history or knowledge about like uh colonialism you'll know that uh, artificially drawing borders uh causes just a lot of um you know 
chaos and yeah. problems but like which it seems we like love the... to do at the time like we just copy <laughs> yeah. paste like the partition plan like everywhere with yeah. all these contradictions built yeah. in we're like oh, okay basically the u.s empire is like it worked for the british why not us you know yeah. Um, yeah. i mean you know yeah so at the moscow conference there's a decision to divide korea and this comes about because of the fact that the soviet union is actually in north korea at the time uh, if the Soviet Union wasn't there, the U.S. would have probably demanded Korea all be a U.S. protectorate. But the U.S. was nowhere near it, and the Soviet Union was. So mm. so all of a sudden, that becomes a division. Now, notice the U.S. is near Japan, not in it, but near it, and the Soviet Union isn't, and Japan's all ours. So that gives the idea of the U.S. perspective of how these things work. But when they divide it, I mean, we don't want to take away from, you know, we don't want to oversimplify and take away too much from what's happening in Korea. What's happening in Korea is already an anti-imperial civil war that's been going on for decades right and the u.s side of that war is going to be a very small bureaucratic military class that represents the sort of occupational quizzlings of korea under Jap japanese rule mm. and the korean war ultimately it's we shouldn't think about it as North against South because almost the entirety of the Southern population fought against the U S occupation. Uh, it is a war of the Korean people against an occupying force backed by the United States. Right. And now the U S just then formalizes that occupation with the armistice and the continued military occupation after the war is over. Um, you know, again, we're saying the U.S. bombs South Korea as much as it bombs North Korea. It is right. killing people in death camps in South Korea, uh, just like it does when it crosses the parallel and kills people in North Korea. So um, it's a war against the entire population of the peninsula. But yeah, other than that, yeah, I mean, yeah, accurate. The U.S. divides it because they feel like they can in the Moscow conference. And then the second they divide it, they immediately begin trying to... Uh, abrogating the moscow conference refusing reunification elections because they know they're going to lose uh this is a theme right you know all across mm -hmm. europe it's going to come up with vietnam as well after the french leave vietnam and the u.s divides vietnam and does the whole dance all over again um and then basically creates its own puppet state in south korea which is just a series of military dictatorships until you get up to the 1990s and uh you know, and it was a genuinely scary place. I, I, we think about South Korea now as just K-pop, you know. Um, but in the 60s, 50s, 1960s in South Korea, I mean, you could be disappeared for speaking out against the U.S. occupation. People vanished all the time, you know. Uh, they were running, you know, <laughs> the Japanese comfort women camps were run by the South Korean government for U.S. soldiers, hilariously, all the way up into the 1970s. You know, I mean, it was like a, it was a pretty terrifying place to be. I mean, it essentially existed under military rule uh, up until popular movements in the 80s, essentially forced elections in the 1990s. Um, it's, uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so in short. Yes, but your description is accurate. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, but I, I do, I do appreciate like that reframe of not necessarily it being a North and South war, but it being mm -hmm. like the U.S. just against the Korean people while they're fighting an imperial anti-imperial war against mm -hmm. uh, Japanese occupation too, um, mm -hmm. which which was you know which has been happening, which was happening during World War Two, um, but that was the that was the. 50s 60s 70s and you know the 
you know, uprisings in the 80s to make elections happen. But arguably, the U.S. is still occupying South Korea, oh, yeah. even though they have elections. Right. And, and th- that's still happening today. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we could definitely put a big asterisk on the idea of democracy in South Korea. The U.S. still puts its thumb on elections quite a bit. Um, they're, you know. There was a brief moment of daylight that came in the late 90s, early 2000s, which also happened to uh, lead to the first, like, what you might call truth and reconciliation commissions, where they actually uh, asked the question of, like, did the South Korean government kill a bunch of people during the Korean War? And Mm -hmm. the first, like, little bits of evidence from the South came out about that. Um, It also led to the first efforts of rapprochement with North Korea, it's worth mentioning that there is considerable support in South Korea for rapprochement and movement towards unification with North Korea. Uh, there's also overwhelming support in North Korea for rapprochement and consideration of unification with South Korea, right? Um, there, it, there is no popular sentiment for keeping these two places as divided countries outside of the united states and like the korean mil- the south korean military uh which loves it you know wow. a lot of money a lot of money in it you know again this okay is well, you well, build institutional structures to, right? right yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you get an institutional structure but that, that i mean i think that goes to speak to the fact that it went on for generations because one of the big things about occupations and and colonialism is that uh once you basically bypass a couple generations this is just like life as it is and it for you know people like you know coming into the world right if that if that history is not either passed down or completely successfully like stamped out by the uh, occupying force uh, it's a lot easier to propagandize you know a population or you know turn it into a sort of like you know culture war or just erase history altogether with no context um and so the fact that it's still today uh it just overwhelmingly unpopular to have a split between North and South Korea and reunification is both from the North Korean people and the South Korean people. Um, very popular, I think speaks to just how, how like, you know, uh, one, like that there just shouldn't like the existence of North and South Korea just should never be, it should just be Korea and, you know, arguably should be referred to, um, as such, but this is like a project of the, U.S. empire and a and a relatively recent one that uh, can should be like you know dismantled like as quickly as it was right. I mean it's it's, it's fresh enough where people are still like, what why the fuck are these borders like even drawn? You know <laughs> in, in general. So like, that that that's interesting. Yeah. But you're also you know getting to a point of you know institutions and structures and money and it's like. Well, it's 2022 as of recording this. Like, why, why is like the U.S. still there? I mean, you know that 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 sure, you know there were strategic impulses in the even in the 80s. Sure, there was, but what is the U.S. doing in South Korea now? Uh, and why why are we still occupying South Korea in in the in the full force? Uh, I guess that we have been for the past like 50, 60 years. Or 70 years now, my gosh. China isn't super far away. So, like, it's strategic to have, like, you know, military bases and to do, like, 
you know, mil military demonstrations like so close to, you know, like North Korea and and China. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not like totally up on, you know, like all this foreign policy or like military theory. But like, I think from the U.S.'s perspective, it's like, uh, you know, you want to. I forget the terminology again, but it's like you want to like extend your, you know, sphere of influence or whatever and like have all this soft power by having all these military bases in as many places as possible from like an empire perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, is the U.S. interest in Korea was initially about the encirclement of the Soviet Union and has been since, you know, 49, uh, you know, dually about the encirclement of China, and it continues to be about the encirclement of China. Uh, I, I just, there's no credible argument that you can give, like looking at U.S. behavior in the region, things like that, that the occupation has anything to do with Korea itself, right? It, Korea is a very convenient airstrip next to China. Now, as far as the U.S. occupation of Korea goes, I mean, it has seen some changes, you know, uh, public anger in South Korea got to the point that the U.S. moved its nuclear weapon stockpile off of South Korea proper and just put it in oh, wow. some put it in submarines on the Korean coast. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure if you ask some shill for the Defense Department, they would tell you, "Oh, those nuclear submarines are aimed at North Korea as a you know countermeasure or whatever." But I think everybody understands that that's a gun pointed at China. Like, you know, we can have nuclear weapons on your shore in, you know, 45 minutes, you know. Right, um, right. The occupation, too, I mean, people, I, I think they underestimate the size of these occupations. Traditionally, there's been forty to 50,000 American soldiers in South Korea at any time. Uh, now, <laughs> the failed war on terror <laughs> over the last 20 years uh where the u.s continually uh you know doesn't meet its primary objective we'll say in places like iraq afghanistan etc has meant they've had to cycle some of those people out and take them to places like afghanistan and stuff but i think this current troop level is still around 32 34,000 in uh south korea now on top of that there is the question of the South Korean army, which is quite huge. Uh, it, uh, its connections to the U.S. military are vast. They are trained by the U.S. military for the most part, advised by the U.S. military. Uh, they receive equipment on discount from the U.S. military. You know, they so you do... can you can call them the U.S. military in a sense, like they're like when you say the South Korean military, there that's highly. <laughs> very like intensely aligned with the u.s yeah i mean it's it certainly is difficult to draw a distinct line between the two that's for sure and I see. uh rok forces were used in vietnam right you know etc i mean like they're they're deeply linked right and mm. the thing is is you might remember uh, Donald Trump accidentally said, uh, tried to broker the deal of, to end all deals. It was going to end the Korean conflict. Uh, apparently, none of his advisors had informed him that actually we maintain the Korean conflict. <laughs> like, it could have ended <laughs> decades ago. Like We're the ones actually holding it up. When, when Trump was doing that, I was like, well, so we're just going to like back out of Korea like, yeah. like that, that that would be what the deal would be, right? Yeah, I mean, really, to end the Korean conflict, all you'd have to do is have the U.S. leave 
Korea. Le- We'd have to make lot. a deal with uh, the U.S. military. That would be a good deal if you could make it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, but it was kind of funny because, I mean, it one, it shows this idea that North and South Korea are just foes at each other's throats and the U.S. is the only thing maintaining peace. I, it was just shown to be such a fiction, which is why there was a huge, you know, revolt against it from our chattering classes. But, you know, politicians from the North and South rushed into that void that Trump briefly created and immediately began talking about like, oh, hey, you know, let's let's start moving towards a plan of rapprochement, of increased cooperation. Yeah, and I remember uh, that. Yeah, with the idea of obviously moving towards some sort of unification. And the U.S. military's response to that was they immediately launched a massive, you know, war game with its South Korean military counterpart, you know, to try and antagonize the North as best they could, you know, try and get some sort of reaction out of the North and things like that. And, you know, it's an open question to which, you know, uh, to what degree any military is actually under the rule of civilian leadership. But in South Korea, that's very much an open question. And, uh, you know, the, the U.S. military and the South Korea military directly worked together to sabotage the foreign policy talks between its own political leadership, you know, uh, whether it was sabotaging Trump's, you know, <laughs> admittedly uh, silly effort to broker the deal of all deals <laughs> or <laughs> to sabotage uh, the efforts of South Korean political leadership, you know, to reach out to North Korea, you know. Um, and I think that shows who the players are, you know, on both sides. Uh, right. The so the military was just acting as its own political institution in a way, undermining its own, basically like commander in chief, so to speak. I don't know how Korea refers to their like. Is it, is yeah. it, sorry, is it president or prime minister for? I believe they have Korean? they have a parliamentary system. I believe it's still president. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, president. So I, yeah, I don't I don't know how uh, you know if the president is basically like the equivalent of the commander in chief in, uh, in Korea as well. But it's, it seems like, you know, the U S military and the Korean military, uh, were operating to essentially stymie their own, mm-hmm. uh, leaders, uh, you know, ability to try to at least again, immediately in a silly way, but still like try to broker some type of peace deal. Yeah. And the smart guy, like CFR council for relations response, that might be like, oh, but those war games are regular. Like, they happen every, you know, year or two. And the thing is, it's like, yeah, they regularly have them to raise tensions with North Korea. Like, there's, every time there's some sort of talk about easing tensions with North Korea, the U.S. launches one of these war games to try and raise them again, which means the South Korean military is very well aware of the purpose of these war games and did them anyway. (laughs) you know to to directly fucking shoot their own you know political leadership in the dick which they did and it's it i mean it's incredible i mean it's it's an incredible thing to consider especially when you consider again the size of the south korean military and stuff it's like this is what colonial occupation looks like you know this is how political leaders are kept in check now right you know we could talk about the uh you know the last few Korean uh, elections and how uh, the various scandals involved and how real maybe some of the results were, but you know, that's probably going way too far afield. But I mean, (laughs) the thing is, is that this is true in West Germany too. I mean, when we're talking about the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, you know, uh, you know, Conrad Adenauer, who's who's appointed as the first sort of political leader of West Germany 
ends up being forced out by students who literally storm his office and like wheel his 90 year old corpse out the door <laughs> um, like you know like the u.s is controlling the sort of german elections as well the u.s maintains 30 some odd thousand troops in germany you know i mean if you put any country's name at the beginning of this it would be very easy for anybody to see this is an occupation right, right. A military occupation but somehow when you put the U.S.'s name in front of it, all of a sudden it's not a military occupation, you know, and it's, you know, what is that other than propaganda? I mean, I, yeah, you know. sure. Well, well, I guess also just in really quickly, you know, speaking of U.S. occupation and encirclement of China, um, Japan is another one that doesn't really actually come up even as much as I think Korea does when you think about the U.S. occupation. Would you say that Japan is occupied by the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Japan is, as we kind of talked about in the previous episode, is because of the U.S.'s very tight relationship with the Japanese political leadership, uh, they were able to offshore their occupation to Okinawa, which is a, a ethnic minority that the Japanese have been shitting on for like 200 years. Um, it would be essentially like as if... Uh, the U.S. was occupied by China or something and then struck a deal with China to move the occupation to Puerto Rico. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like technically part of the U.S., but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, but again, I mean, th- there have been large, like, public demonstrations, uproar against these kind of occupations. One, because of the horrifying things that happened during them. You know, people get killed in these occupations, uh, and there's no justice for it because you're forced into these status of forces agreements or SOFA agreements with the United States where you cannot criminally charge any U.S. service member uh, who's part of the occupational forces. So U.S. soldiers will run people over with their fucking trucks, right? They'll fucking slip off base and murder somebody, rape people. All these kind of things happen fairly regularly at these bases. And, you know, the population is just told to you know, fuck you, live with it, right? And that creates a lot of anger. But the other part of it, too, is by occupying these places, the United States is telling these people, you're going to be the front line for our war. So if we do go to war with China, you, the South Korean people, you, the Japanese people, you're going to be the ones who get killed, not us. Like, we're going to put the battlefield in your country, you know? Same with the West West Germany was that, you know, uh, if the Cold War all of a sudden becomes a hot war, the first nukes are landing on you guys. And, hmm. you know, understandably, a lot of people are not particularly thrilled with that bargain. You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, it's it's um, I mean, in a meta way, it seems like it's almost a pressure release for or maybe like a tranche theory of like, essentially, if like a war with China breaks out. I think a lot of Americans, at least like in the, uh, you know, the lower 48, will have this idea of like China launching this like cross ocean like missile or or nuke mm-hmm. or something that like hits like the mainland. But really, like a, a war with China would look like basically an intense war with, uh, you know, the Korean Peninsula and Japan and basically you know within that region because that's like actually a lot closer and that's mm-hmm. like where the U.S. is like located right so only only then so basically like korea and japan would basically have to be completely wiped out 
mm. in order for then then you know it's like a war with maybe like u.s mainland but that that, that, that sounds like a pretty awful deal for people to be involuntarily like held captive and basically like, if <laughs> china chooses to go to war with the u.s not even korea yeah. they are the ones getting hit right yeah because of the nuclear stockpile in south korea and in you know okinawa because of the airfields in both those locations, they would have to be attacked in any sort of war uh, between China and the United States. Uh, I mean, China would basically be surrendering the war to not attack those locations. Yeah. Uh, and that's by design. Yeah. You know? And uh, some people might remember that when the second Gulf War happened in 2003, one of the big arguments the Bush administration gave for it was, well, if we go in, you know, because as all the, you know, arguments about invading Iraq fell apart, one of the ones that they gave was like, oh, well, we're fighting the war over there, so we don't have to fight it over here, right? And it was kind of ludicrous in the context of what they were talking about, which was just occupying a country that had already pretty much fallen apart. Yeah. But it said something about the way U.S. think, like foreign policy thinkers think about imperial policy abroad, which is how do we move the front line of the battlefield into some other location and essentially force other populations to do the fighting and the dying for us? And that is essentially what the occupations of Japan, South Korea, Germany, uh, I don't know, Ukraine, maybe. Uh, that's mm. essentially what these occupations are meant to do. You know, uh, the current like saber rattling over Ukraine uh, future listener, maybe the war has already happened. I don't know. But uh is basically about how can we get as many Ukrainians to die for U.S. foreign policy as possible? <laughs> you know, it's yeah, uh, which which like demonstrably is missed or is like purposefully like misled, right? And it's you you mm -hmm. you can see a scenario where if if war is actually happening against the U.S., you would basically see it being framed at least in U.S. media. I don't want to get too big into like media critique or anything, but like. You know, you would see probably Korea or the Korean government or the Korean people, uh, mm -hmm. you know, gear up for war against China, right? With like no mention, and and the U.S. Oh, yeah. is like, you know, here to save Korea from this like impending battle, like you know, when in reality, just like Ukraine, which I'm sorry, like the the fact that even I think uh, on the left there is confusion about what Ukraine's role is in. Um, <laughs> in this war which is uh is, the u.s is not uh being a uh a savior in this this yeah. is literally like a satellite Traditional of liberator in US. the united states yeah yeah right <laughs> <laughs> they, they they just don't want to see um you know a a country like you know russia you know move on ukraine they, they're doing the right thing by you know doing sanctions or you know upping troops when in reality it's been like a satellite of the u.s for quite a while with like you mm. know a military base there that's where actually i think even police departments like will get trained sometimes like they'll get sent to israel or ukraine oh, yeah. or something like we're like u.s police departments and stuff yeah. uh, Seattle PD <laughs> and israel for sure yeah. yeah yeah so you know it's like it i feel like it's important to make these points and be very explicit about what is going on because it can be obfuscated really quickly especially if you do live in the in the u.s 
I, yeah, you should always be weary when the media says uh, this population thinks this, right? You know, like the entirety of Iraq thinks this. It's like, no, from your own experience in America, no, no, there's no uniform opinion amongst any population. <laughs> and what they're really telling you is uh, this group of people who agree with our preconceived notion uh, also, you know, that that's the one that we've decided are the official sp- yeah, spokesmen. Spokespeople, this. yeah. You know, I mean... Um, you know, and I mean, they do it because that shit works, you know, I mean, and, and the I use this quote all the time because it's so great. And I, I got to find the clip of it someday. But Bruce Cummings, who's sort of the preeminent historian, American historian on on modern Korea and the Korean War. uh, He was doing a talk one time, I think, at the Naval College. And somebody asked him, like, but don't like North Koreans. They don't even know what's happening in the outside world. Like, you know, so, you know like they're just under the subject rule of their leadership or something. And Bruce Cummings' response was that from his experience talking to like people in North Korea, you know, just average everyday people that like they knew as much about what was happening in the outside world as the average person in Illinois did. And I don't think he was meaning that the average person in Illinois knew a lot about what was happening in the outside world. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, that's, you know, keeping people in that sort of state of ignorance is important. Right. I mean, we get when we talk about the power of propaganda. I mean, this is part of it. Definitely, yeah, yeah, it plays a significant role. Let me just throw one more funny story about that. Just in there, yeah, though. yeah, please. As a you know, uh, youth-ish in my twenties, um, me and some friends went and watched That's Bad still Boys. Still youth, too. by the way. It is. Officially, <laughs> it's still youth. Me, me is holding on to it. <laughs> me and some friends watched Bad Boys Two in the theater, so that'll give you an idea of when my tw- early twenties were. But uh, watch Bad Boys Two in the theater and. Um, there's a scene at the very end where they, you think the movie's over, but there's still 45 more minutes that take place in Cuba. And they are like driving a Hummer, like running over, like what uh, appear to be like favelas or something in Cuba, just smashing through all of them and being chased by the Cuban government slash drug Lords. (laughs) And they, they end up escaping and making their way to Guantanamo Bay where they're rescued by the U S military. <laughs> and I, I mean, this whole thing's very absurd. It must've, it had to come out after the Iraq war, Maybe it came out like 2005 or something. <laughs> and I just remember like after the movie was over, my friend was like, that movie is like so absurd, which it's like, well, yeah, it's a Michael Bay movie, but he was like, huh, like the Cubans would ever let us have a military base in Cuba. And I just remember, like, <laughs> we fucking, that's a real thing, dude. Like, like they didn't let us have it, first off. <laughs> like, yeah, like, what's our exist, dude? It's yeah, been running kinda... over favelas with Hummers, like, that is realistically believable. They were correct about that. <laughs> like, yeah. But, I mean, but this, you know, this guy, I mean, not to, like, shit on him or anything, but just a regular old guy in America yeah, or whatever, right. right? Had no fucking clue that we have for 100 years, 120 two years now maintained a military base in cuba against the will of the population of the cuban people right uh where hilariously carried out torture and things like that how many people know about the fact that we have thirty thousand plus troops in south korea or in germany for that matter or you know that we have 750 military bases abroad right or that we're currently bombing fucking you know in sedan and somalia you know Mm -hmm. nobody knows any of this shit you know and how could you people Maybe some people think that we closed down uh, Guantanamo Bay after Obama. Yeah, after 08. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, almost certainly, you know? And I'm sure some people thought that, like, we're well aware because Elvis was stationed there that there was, like, U.S. troops in West Germany, and we're like, well, after unification and the end of the Cold War, clearly they all left. It's like, no, they're all still no, there. You know? Just there. I, how yeah, have, and if you I, have if you have like friends in the in the military or like an ROTC or something in college, right? You, they'll they'll talk about like they'll be, be like stationed <laughs> or trained in like different places, and you'll hear them be like, uh, like if you just kind of talk about travel, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I've been to Germany, I've been to Korea, I've been to you know like uh, you know a lot of different like sometimes they'll say Israel, but it's usually like Germany and Korea are the two big ones that they'll send like they're yeah. young, you know, just to like get stationed there for six months and then get rotated out, right? And it's like if they're it's, in the Marines, <laughs> it'll be Okinawa, yeah, mm-hmm, it's, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's like very these very specific spots. I mean, uh, my dad who was in the army for years. Uh, he had this like prayer rug hanging in our like in our living room as kids, which is very strange. We're we're Catholic, lapsed Catholics. But he had this like prayer rug. It wasn't until I was much older that I asked him about it. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I got it from these like Saudi like officers, you know, who we were doing like a little officer exchange." <laughs> and it came to me as a gift, right? Um, you know, I had a friend in the who was in the army in college, uh, who you know his first. He joined in 98 or something like that. And the first place he was stationed was in El Salvador. And it's like, wait, hold on. You shouldn't be there. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) he's like, like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, (laughs) what what are they going to do? You know, but like, I mean, like. People have no idea, like the size, scope, breadth of the U.S. empire. I mean, it's 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 something to behold, to be sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. To get back to our sort of original question, I mean, this is the legacy of the Korean War. I mean, you know, if it wasn't Korea, it'd probably be somewhere else. But I mean, this is the Korean War sort of normalizes this in a way, sets the blueprint, etc. I mean, particularly the genocidal nature of it. I mean, they do all those same things in Vietnam. They just drag it over a a slightly larger time frame, all the way up to uh, serious discussion of nuclear weapons uh, in Vietnam as well, as well as chemical warfare. Uh, etc yeah yeah let's get let's get let's get closing thoughts i i want to hear like so this is this is a really really great discussion guys um and i really appreciate it it really i think i even uh learned a lot by by just uh you know listening to you two like uh experts on this topic actually do uh talk about it so thanks for uh you know doing the reading thanks for uh making an eight hour long series about the specific moment in time please i uh recommend everyone uh, go listen to it. It is uh, it's three episodes long. Which, if you're an ending the myth listener, that is uh, that is table stakes. That's nothing, right? Three episodes, <laughs> you already know. So, um, yeah, go go on and watch that. Uh, or sorry, go on and to listen to that. Uh, <laughs> um, you can you can watch just the icon as well while you play yeah. You the can watch the icon and you so. can watch the <laughs> scrubbling go across the screen. Yeah. You know, slowly. Uh, but yeah, let, let's uh, let's just get some uh, closing thoughts to close this out. Um, Justin, you, you want to go, go first? first? Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll just say that um, you know, uh, it, th- things didn't go as well as they could have. So I'm gonna be a little <laughs> bit redundant, and this will also tie into one of the plugs we're gonna make. In that, uh, mm. I think we really need more working class organization, more working class institutions. You know, we need a uh, political 
institutions such that, you know, we can not only just like, uh, you know, we can think past like just electing the right people and, uh, you know, put people, you know, if, if we participate in elections, you know, put people in office that are going to be, uh, you know, accountable to a political organization and also do not treat the state as a neutral territory because it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, that th this is something uh, I've been thinking about a lot, both in the context of this and then, you know, locally with the recent uh, uh, Chama election. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a really great, great thought. I mean, it seems like it really does all circle back to, to labor, you know, especially when you're dealing with an antagonistic bourgeois state, the antagonistic against labor, like, like that's kind of where the leverage is, it seems. And even, you know, for other liberation stuff too, like when we talk about, I still on my mind, I can't believe it's been almost two years now, but you know, the uprisings of 2020, you know, like mm -hmm. what, what, it, what could have been if we were organized in general, but also, you know, had a radical uh, national labor movement too, that could actually yeah. stop work and like you know actually use leverage for demands instead of like you know getting our ass kicked all day because you know like yeah. you know we did like um you know have to basically you know get guns pointed at us and get beat up a lot but um i think the reason why we basically lost that battle lost meaning that the police got more money that you know none of real systems changed even though there was like a large outpour of like i mean even larger than the civil rights movement in terms of like bodies on the ground, like protesting at once um, is the lack of political organization as well as organized labor. And I think that those are just two extremely key points. If we we're actually trying to like change these systems for the better, like a better world definitely is possible, but you know, it, it does start at, at organizing and organizing labor, especially. So, Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, to that point, you know, organized labor needs a working class political party to focus the vision and provide leadership and things like that. And I don't mean a political party like the Democratic Party, <laughs> more like the Bolshevik <laughs> Party, but, yeah, you know, yeah. it is required. Like, we're not going to uh, horizontally, autonomously organize ourselves over this monster that we just talked about in this episode. Sorry, it's not going to work. You know, yep. um, the other side of it, too, is, uh, look, at some point, there are powerful, violent institutions with, you know, with institutional desire to keep everything exactly as it is. And the various police forces uh, in America, as well as I think there's a million people in America with arresting power where you could literally just fucking arrest you. Right. Like that. That's bad. Uh, also within the military itself and uh, you know, or the military itself. And I don't know, at some point the left is actually have to think about that, you know, yeah. like something will have to be done about that. Uh, in the past, people have organized within the military. Uh, nobody's ever succeeded in organizing within police departments, but you know, if you can get one of the two that helps. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that is both really really thought provoking. It's definitely something to chew on, and it's not necessarily the most comfortable thing to think about. But it, it is real, right? I know if yeah. we're talking about like material realities, that is something that is very, very real. That um, you know, whether you like it or not, 
will become very real when shit gets real. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. you get, yeah. if you know, if you know what I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, no, that's a, thanks so much, guys. This is a really great discussion. Um, let's like uh, round it out with some plugs. Justin, do you have any plugs that you wanna you wanna uplift on the show? I do, and um, hopefully this plug remains evergreen. You know, if you're not listening to this in February 2022, if you're listening to this in 2023, hopefully this, uh, you know, this uh, cafe organizing boom like keeps going. We <laughs> organize Starbucks. We get more. We we get a union contract. We organize other places, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I was going to plug was just, uh, I mean, if you're a Mechanical Freak uh, listener, you probably heard the interview with uh, Sydney, who's a Starbucks United, uh, you know, organizer and, you know, rank and file worker. But there's this, uh, you know, cafe organizing, you know, like movement going on all over the country. I think as of this recording, something like 60 stores in in 19 states um, have filed for union elections and it's just really exciting at a time when you know union density went down last year like maybe this could be the spark that like ignites something bigger reignites the labor movement wouldn't that be awesome uh, so you can donate to their strike fund because they'll need a big strike fund to both you know if they strike, if they, you know, sick out uh, and to intimidate their bosses. Uh, so you can donate to their strike fund. Please do it at tinyurl.com slash Starbucks strike fund. We'll put it in the show notes too. And then, um, you know, locally, if you're in uh, Seattle, um, uh, Starbucks United along with, uh, you know, Seattle DSA, uh, it's actually Starbucks rank and file workers who are part of Starbucks United. I don't know exactly how to describe it organizationally. Uh, workers are involved in leading this, uh, but th there's going to be a, a Starbucks solidarity campaign uh, to mobilize to you know various you know actions when they pop up, do things like uh, poster, uh, you know, show support for this unionization effort. Um, you can sign up to a list there for that campaign, whether you just want to go to actions or volunteer at bit.ly slash Starbucks dot uh, slash. Uh, let, let me reset that bit.ly slash Starbucks dash solidarity. And that'll be in the show notes too, but sign up for that to get updates on actions to support Starbucks workers. Let's go support that movement. Yeah. It's the, the time is now. The time <laughs> is absolutely now. And I hope if you're listening to this in 2032, uh, that the time is still now. So well, no, that, that's when uh, the Star Wars Union will become a full revolutionary party. Uh, these are Mal's uh, gorillas in the countryside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, you know, and if you're listening to this in 2024, uh, vote Biden. I think we can all agree. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the most important election of your life. Yeah. It'll, it'll, just like every election following. <laughs> yeah. Somehow it always is. Yep. <laughs> Stakes always get raised somehow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Until yeah. immediately afterwards, and then it's just business then as usual. Oh, weird. Well. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I'm gonna write in uh, Matt Christman in 2024. Yeah, yeah. Let's get, let's get that movement going. <laughs> I did uh, big respect to everybody who wrote in Hillary Clinton in the 2021. That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. I think. Hey, you know they, 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 they kept funny. on they, they, they for four years. They shot us for not voting for Hillary. And hey, you know what? We, we gave them their wish. We did it. <laughs> we, we, you know they are always out to criticize a bro when you know we do something wrong but when we, we do picked, something right yeah, where we are they the woman over them of yeah. over a old yeah. white man exactly i mean we picked a woman on. of color hillary clinton yeah. over, <laughs> over an old white man <laughs> come on dan savage you gotta respect that <laughs> if you're listening dan yeah yes 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 all right, guys. Well, you know, on that note, uh, we'll be having, you know, another ep- episode coming out next week. So stay tuned on Sunday. We're going to be discussing. Uh, what, 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 yeah. Very special guests in our next episode. Uh, you guys are going to like it. It's great. No, uh, no spoilers. Oh, nope. come on. Good time. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. Very special guest. Tune in. Space, space, space.